Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Pastor Kristen Stone King. Our mission at Epworth is to live out God's love for all. We strengthen our faith as we worship, study, develop a creative, supportive community, and serve others. Together, we encourage each other, challenge each other, and welcome all people on their journey of faith. We are a reconciling congregation, meaning that persons of all sexual orientations and gender identities are welcomed to help transform our church and our world into the full expression of Christ's inclusive love. We are a sanctuary church, advocating for the rights and dignity of immigrants, and we stand in solidarity with the movement for Black Lives. To praise and glorify, unify, oh how we love you, oh how we praise you, oh how we worship. Our podcast blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with a scripture reading and a message.
chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, and Romans chapter 13, verse 10 today. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked them, what commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and beside him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any other question. From Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. A blessed morning to everybody here. Um, I am uh, always grateful for the opportunity to, to share the word. And um, I was requested by your pastor, I think who's somewhere else, obviously, <laughs> that I could share the word today. And I would like to share stories um, with you uh, this morning. Also on this eve of uh, what is known here as Columbus Day, and some people uh, would, would rather have a Indigenous Peoples Day celebration, it would be good for us to, to talk about harm. And also from there, talk about other harms that we engage in as, as an institution, as a church. And when we talk about not doing harm and doing good and staying in love with God, which are uh, probably the modern rendition of our uh, general rules as Methodists, there are really no easy answers. So I'm going to preface our conversation here with that. Like an echo of what Susan said at the children's uh, message, that there are really no easy answers. Um, and a lot of this comes with more conversation, understanding of context and culture, and, um, and really building relationships. But we try to see how we can live into a world without harm, or at least in our own lives, not to harm others and to, 
to seek to do good. Now, in, in the midst of a revolution against Spain uh, back home in my home country, um, and I was a refugee here for, for a while, and I just naturalized as a citizen in 2020. Um, in the midst of that war uh, against Spain, the United States also had a war against Spain. It was the Spanish-American War, um, close to the turn of the century. And in, in May of 1898, um, the Battle of Manila Bay happened, where the Spanish fleet from Hong Kong sailed into Manila Bay, the capital of the country, and defeated uh, the Spanish Armada that was there. But not a lot of people know that the revolutionary president of my home country was actually in Hong Kong to talk with then Commodore Dewey, and now later on became Admiral Dewey, who has a monument, by the way, at Union uh, Square in San Francisco. And his monument commemorates the Battle of Manila Bay and the conquest of the Philippines. Um, we asked, our revolutionary government asked the United States to help us against the war against Spain. You know how it is, like, we have, we have the same enemy. Will you help us? We, are, we have a revolution happening right now. And so they came, of course, the Americans did come. And, but weeks after the Battle of Manila Bay, when um, the American fleet did destroy the uh, Spanish Armada, weeks after that, there was a dilemma. Now, what do we do with the Philippines? And let me read here what, what President McKinley said who is a, uh, is Methodist. Uh, I think I went to one church near DC and, and saw that spot. I think it's Metropolitan United Methodist Church where supposedly that's where McKinley went to church and had a special, you know, like a little plate on the seat, which I think we do. <laughs> it's almost like my whole clan donated this whole pew and this is where I sit. Um, but when he was supposedly reflecting about, oh, now the Philippines suddenly fell into the lap of the United States, like. What do we do? And he, in his own story that was printed in the uh, Christian Advocate of January 22nd of 1903, he said that he paced, he walked the floor of the White House night after night until midnight. I am not ashamed to tell you, gentlemen, that I went down on my knees and prayed to Almighty God for light and guidance more than one night. And one night late, it came to me this way. I don't know how it was, but it came. He said that, well, we could not give them back to Spain. That would be cowardly and dishonorable. We could not turn them over to France and Germany, our commercial rivals in the Orient. That would be bad business and discreditable. That we would not leave them to themselves because they were unfit for self-government. And that they would have soon enough anarchy and misrule worse than Spain's was. We were in the midst of revolution here, folks that there was nothing left for us to do but to take them all and to educate the Filipinos and uplift and civilize and Christianize them. And by God's grace, do the very best we could by them as our fellow men for whom Christ also died. And then he went to bed and was at peace. And short story, there was this Philippine-American war, which I think is not taught in the history books here. It was seen as an insurrection where 4,200 American 
soldiers died, 20,000 20, Filipino soldiers died, and over 200,000 Filipino civilians died out of famine and want and you know, collateral damage in that war of colonization. And I think, I think that for me, you know, I, I, when I hear that story and I hear the story of indigenous people in this country, that it resonates with me. The, the, the story of, of when they hear their stories and the harm. And in some instances, our church is involved in this harm. But I'm also surprised that our early um, Methodist siblings did have very simple general rules. And, you know, this was in, I think, in 1739, John Wesley uh, had these societies or these classes. And that the thrust of the early Methodist movement was to reform the nation, particularly the church, and to spread scriptural holiness over the land. And then there's this connection about personal piety, love of God, and it's always linked with love of neighbor, a passion for justice and renewal in the life of the world. For, for Wesley, there's no religion but social religion, no holiness but social holiness. And for me, reading that, growing up, uh, being born into this church, and then looking at the history of atrocities and harm, it always challenges me, why would I still want to be in this church, <laughs> right? For we are asked to do no harm, to do good. And I reflect on not just the harm that happens when you, you have colonization, and then that is, of course, related to racism. I mean, to be seen as unfit. And we've been Christians for over 300 years under Spain. And to say that we're not Christians um, is, of course, you know, a Protestant's privilege to say, right? I, I mean, it's difficult, correct? Because... Maybe if the Americans didn't come, I would not learn how to speak English, probably. I would not even be a United Methodist clergy because, yes, the Methodist bishops did lobby Congress. And there's, there, it's, in the, it's in the archives of Congress that they had a hearing and the Methodist bishops came and said, yes, it's good, let's go and it's open country. We're going to Christianize them. And the Methodists did come. And my home church is actually the first Methodist and first Protestant church in the Philippines. My home church. But it's difficult to, to see that um, as a Methodist now and the harm, especially as a gay Methodist clergy person. And I don't need to tell you of, of, of the harm that's in the Book of Discipline. But this harm, and I, I would want to be vulnerable with you because I think I, while calling the church to account, I would also need to hold myself responsible for my own um, harmful ways. I was deep in the closet and in high school I called somebody, I told somebody, and I was reminded of that later, that I did tell him in high school, I went to a Methodist high school, 
that he was going to hell for being gay. And then later on he told me, well, look at you now, you're gayer than all of us combined. <laughs> Not only that, you're professionally a homosexual, you know? But I had to apologize and repent of that. But the worst is when I cause harm to another person, specifically a queer person. Do you remember uh, Frank Schaefer? The clergy person who officiated the wedding of his son, he's from Pennsylvania, and then he, he went through trial, a very public trial, and was defrocked. An appeal was made. He was refrocked, apparently. It's funny when the church has refrocked, defrocked, like we're not even wearing a frock. Make us wear a frock if you want to do that, right? I would want to wear a frock. Um, and then he transferred to Southern California. Um, the last workshop I did for RMN before the pandemic happened was in Pennsylvania. It's Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. And the bishop there is Bishop Peggy Johnson, who is the bishop that uh, facilitated that trial, or at least you know, allowed the trial to, put, to happen. Um, and of course, as somebody who is uh, organizing for LGBTQ inclusion, that was like something very personal when you, when you harm someone that way. And at that workshop, um, I was informed that uh, by the organizers that the bishop's spouse, um, Michael Johnson, was going to attend the workshop in RSVP. And I was like, good, the bishop's sending spies. The spouse nonetheless, and so the day came and the spouse was there, um, Michael, and I tried to do small talk, but already in my mind, my defenses were up and I already judged him and said, I'm not gonna talk to you. And I just did that. I even saw like, oh, he has like long hair, like a ponytail like me, hippie-ish, you know? And I just, made, I was in my head, not going to deal with you. And years later, I think last year, we hear the news that Michael, the bishop's spouse, Bishop Peggy Johnson's spouse, after she retired as bishop, he came out as a transgender woman. Now Mary Johnson. I cried. I was just embarrassed. Because I was being harmed by the church and now I'm extending that harm. Little did I know, because they kept this as a secret within their family, that the bishop knew that she was married to a transgender woman, and they had to wait for her to retire so that that coming out won't harm the ministry entrusted to her as bishop. And she had to go through that while doing this trial for somebody who was officiating a wedding of a gay man, nonetheless his son. But I was blinded by my own hatred 
and the harm that I felt that I would harm someone. For there in front of me, a trans person probably wanting to be in relationship with me. And I'm probably the only LGBTQ person in that room with her. And I shunned her. Don't you think we do that sometimes? We, we hold the church accountable, but sometimes we don't look in their side and like, what am I doing sometimes? And it's hard when we talk about not doing harm. It's easy to rail on the institution, but I had to hold myself accountable to that. And every day, I could talk about colonization, but I am in the United States. I was a political refugee for some time. I have to be mindful of the privileges I have. But that kind of harm needs to stop. It needs to stop from the levels, the higher levels of our institutions, and then that's why we advocate for change in the policies of our church. But I guess it also needs to start with us and be mindful of the privileges that we have. And sometimes in progressive circles, we are like in a bubble. And then sometimes I realize that's really not enough. I have a friend who is a transgender clergy person, a deacon, who wanted to serve um, half of her time doing reconciling ministries work in her conference. And half of her time doing the stuff that she does as a deacon around pastoral care. And we worked with the district superintendent on how that could happen. I worked with our executive director at RMN of how we could that, ha that could happen. And she didn't want to be paid for that work. And she said, I'm going to get you know, uh, my, my bread and butter from my other work. But I want to do this for my own community as a transgender person to organize for reconciling ministries in my conference. And that would be my appointment. Job description was done. Work with the DS was done. And then... I was informed by the, we were informed by the DS later on, the, the bishop, this is in a, in a progressive conference, supposedly an ally bishop. And we were informed that the bishop would not appoint her to RMN because Reconciling Ministries Network is not an official caucus of the United Methodist Church. I was flabbergasted because I'm from the Philippines, my bishop is traditional, my central conference is traditional, I've been appointed to work with RMN since 2013. Why would that not happen in a supposedly a progressive conference with an ally bishop? So that harm still continues, even when you think you're already in these safe circles. That's why that work of doing no harm continues, always. And it's good that we say we just don't do harm, do not, we don't do harm, but we also do good because we need to be more proactive. And that's why I really like that second general rule. Yes, I'm committed to do no harm, but I will do good. It's like saying, I am not a racist. That is not enough. You have to be an anti-racist. You really have to be very proactive. I have to be very proactive to help and be on the, on the battlefront of those trying to tear down a systemic evil 
I can't just say like, oh yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not racist. I have friends who are people of color. We're good. No, <laughs> I have to see you there with me and others struggling to fight this evil of racism, of colonialism, to speak up against it. That is, I think, what doing good means. Yes, compassion is great and, and, and assisting in people's you know, well-being, but then I think we need to, to also see the importance of changing policies and laws and speak out against it by providing support to these actions, to these advocacies, and then building relationships, seeking change through these relationships. Um, I have a friend who's just been a Methodist for two years and not even officially professed faith and been part of a Methodist church, but he's in the Philippines. He's a very young, uh, he's in college, he's a college senior, an out gay young adult. Um, his name is Ray Gabriel Maravilla. And I just met him a year ago, and he's talented, he's smart, he wants to be a teacher, professor, but of course, you know, we clergy usually, we want to recruit people to ordain ministry. <laughs> so I was like sort of telling him, you know, you could be a professor and be a deacon, you know. And at some point I was telling him like, hey, I'm the only out clergy from our conference, but I'm not there. But you're there, you know people, you, you, you know, you've, you've, been a, uh, you've been an intern in, in the Methodist church building back home and people know you. And, of course, he's praying about it, but I'm still not, you know, not stopping from the recruitment process. But I did ask him, I said, why are you in this church? You left, you were thrown out of your home, evangelical family. He's Filipino-Chinese. And why did you find yourself in the Methodist church when, in fact, the Metropolitan Community Church provides for your scholarship? They do. They're, they're, there's a Metropolitan Community Church, an MCC church in the Philippines. Um, and they're great folks. Uh, and they're helping him through school. But I said, why are you in the, in the Methodist Church? Why are you in the United Methodist Church? And he said two things. He said, one, I read, I don't know why, people would go read the Book of Discipline, right? <laughs> But he did. I mean, that's what happens probably if you're new. I mean, you've just been Methodist for two years, so you, you read out. And he, he said, from what I read, and apart from that, what I researched, he said, I love uh, John Wesley's theology and teachings and the Methodist teachings of grace as a gay man. To know that in my mother's womb, I've been embraced with, by God's grace is just amazing. I said, okay, I mean, that's common, I hear that. But then the second one, the second reason he said, I could have joined MCC and they've asked me to, but I told them, you know, MCC, you kind of get it. You're, you got your stuff going already. I mean, you're, you have a gay pastor, LGBTQ folks, you know, in church, and you're doing really good work, you're supporting me. But as a gay man, I feel that and I think that I need to be part of a struggle for justice to help liberate our own people. And I see this happening in the United Methodist Church. <laughs> I 
I was like, oh my God, if I'm going to be jaded, this is going to wake me up. Because I'm here, I have all the privilege, and this guy is in the Philippines. And now he's helping me with this LGBTQ dinner reception that RMN is hosting on November 18th, of which your church, by the way, provided funds for. Talk about doing good. That's an inspiration to me to think that God is not done with us. When we seek to do good, God will always be there to inspire us. I'm definitely inspired by that. It keeps me up in the morning when I wake up. It's like to think that somebody wants to stay in the struggle. While I, of course, respect and love our siblings who need to hang back and and, and leave the trenches and rest, yes, by all means. But to know that God will keep calling people to struggle for justice inspires me and should inspire us to do good. So friends, let us be inspired by these stories and be challenged by them as well. To always do good and to do no harm. God bless you.
You've been listening to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Wherever you're located, we'd love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. Our online worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings on Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at epworthberkeley.org. Or you can fill out an online connect card at epworthberkeley.org backslash connect. Have a great week. Thank you.